Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I uh, founded Grace Life Ministries, which keeps me pretty busy these days, teaching, preaching, um, because I had a burden for the gospel message uh, to be preached, taught, understood clearly, and that has taken me in many places around the world where they don't have easy access to uh, theological education. Um, that's not meaning you so much, but uh, third world developing nations like Africa, India, and uh, Southeast Asia, where people cannot afford and do not have access to that. So we do training there and then conferences around the United States. I did, while I was a seminary student, start a church in the Texas area, Dallas-Fort Worth area, and it was a Bible church, and it basically started from a Bible study, and the people said, we want to start a church. Would you help us start a church? And I said, okay, I'll stay with you for three years and help you get started. And that three years turned into 19 years. I helped them get into a building. We bought some land, got into a building, and everything was going very well. Leaders were growing up. The atmosphere, environment in the church was healthy. I love them. They love me. So I quit. <laughs> Went out on a high note <laughs> because really this is what I want to do. And um, I still go to the church, but I'm rarely there, so I don't interfere with things. And uh, we're good friends with the pastor anyway. It all's, it's all good. And uh, so here where I am, Grace Life Ministries, I say, shares the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Let that sink in. The gospel of grace with unbelievers because unbelievers must understand that the, the gift of God is free. The grace of God is free. And then the grace of the gospel with believers because many believers, after they're saved, will get back under a system of performance. And they think they have to either earn, keep, deserve, uh, or prove their salvation by their works. And that then becomes some kind of system of legalism with an emphasis on outward works instead of what God has done. So um, that's what Grace Life Ministries is all about. And I hope you can access the resources there through the app would be the easiest way. That's what I recommend to you. Well, we're starting in chapter 6 now. So we're moving from a discussion of sin at first to our salvation, justification, salvation, to now our sanctification. And sanctification, the word itself means to be set apart. When we are sanctified, we are set apart from sin to God. It's the same word from which we get the word holy in the original language. It uses the same root basic word. So we're becoming holy in our conduct, not in our position before God, but in our conduct. But it does depend on our condition before God. And so we want to answer the question, how righteous can grace make us? When we get to chapter 5 in the book of Romans, let me use that, this here. We have a transition, as I pointed out uh, earlier in chapter 5. Having now been justified by his blood, verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So Paul is drawing to a close his discussion of justification and opening up a discussion of how we are now being sanctified or saved through him. He puts it in the future tense. Verse 10, for if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved, or we shall be saved by his life? So the life of Christ is the key to our sanctification. It's learning to be in our new position and appropriating that life of Christ. And that's where we are that then when we come to this discussion of sanctification. Now something that is just crucial to understand is the difference between justification and sanctification. If you understand this difference, you will be miles or kilometers down the road in your Bible understanding and in your theological understanding. Because so many today have taken what is sanctification truth and merged it into justification truth and it changes the gospel. It changes the Christian life. And that's why I wrote that book, the black and white book I call it, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship, and talk about A, truth, that's, that's justification truth, and B, truth, that's sanctification truth. Because some passages are A, truth in the Bible, some passages are B, truth. And we need to make that distinction to keep the gospel clear. And let's just go through this real quickly. Justification is an instant event. It happens in a moment. We believe in Christ, we're saved, just like that. But sanctification is a lifetime process, a lifetime journey. Justification involves our new position with God. But sanctification is our practice of the Christian life. Justification is one condition. What would that be? Faith or believe. Yeah, same word, Greek language, verb, believe, faith, noun. Same word in the Greek. That's the one condition for salvation, justification. But there are many conditions for sanctification. Read the Bible, pray ceaselessly, love one another, etc. I mean, hundreds in, in the epistles, and Jesus gave conditions for discipleship as well. So we're really talking about discipleship in sanctification. Justification depends on Jesus' work for me that I could not do. Sanctification depends on how I respond and work with him. So it's a cooperative process. In justification, it establishes a relationship that cannot ever be broken or lost. But in sanctification, it establishes the possibility of fellowship within that relationship. Now, we don't want to get you confused with these words, but let's illustrate it simply. I have a son. I have four daughters. Three daughters, right? <laughs> Use my son as an example. I have my son. He was born. He'll always be my son. That's our relationship. However, when he acted up, when he snuck out the window at night, and we confronted him the next day, there was a break in our fellowship that had to be restored. Got me? You understand what we're talking about? And that's true with God as well. David didn't lose his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation. He didn't lose his position in relationship. He lost his fellowship with God. So justification is a birth, unless you're born again. That happens in a moment of time, but sanctification is our process of growth. So we come to know Jesus as Savior in our justification. We grow in him as our Lord and master in our sanctification. That distinction is very important to make because we're moving from the discussion of justification in the book of Romans to sanctification now in chapter 6. So, uh, when we teach the free grace of God, we're often criticized for teaching easy believism, uh, cheap grace, costly grace. But it's only one kind of grace. But I love this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, British theologian. 
when he commented on Romans. He says, there's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people may misunderstand it and misinterpret it. To mean that it really amounts to this, that because you're saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of God. That's what we are accused of teaching. That's what Paul was accused of teaching. And that's what brings us to chapter 6 where Paul answers that objection. So by the way, if you get, to criti get criticized because you teach that grace is absolutely free, welcome to the club. You're preaching the gospel that Paul preached. Okay? So let's not be ashamed of it. Let's be very happy to stand with Paul. Two questions are answered in Rome, Romans 6. First, shall we sin to get more grace? Grace is a good thing. Shall we sin to get more? Why does he ask that question? Because chapter 5 ends uh, by leading us there in verse 20. Um, he says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Where there's more law, there's more... There's more offense because the law is the knowledge of sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where we have sin, we have grace to cover it. And the more we have sin, the more grace we have to cover it. In other words, you cannot out-sin the grace of God. And so someone can take that and say, you can't out-sin the grace of God, then we can sin as much as we want to and get more grace since grace is a good thing. But these are people who don't understand the freedom that they have in grace. They don't understand that, that sin is no longer master over them, and they're reflecting the old life where sin is their master instead of the freedom that they have. On Monday in the United States, 16th of June, we celebrated the new holiday for us, Juneteenth it is called, Juneteenth um, reflects the historical fact that in June 19, 1865, the slaves, it was announced to them, you know, in our dark chapter of history when we had slavery, it was announced to them in June 19, 1865 that they were free. And so there was great celebration throughout the southern states that practiced slavery. The thing is, they were freed legally by the Emancipation Proclamation January 1, 1863, two and a half years before. But the masters didn't tell the slaves. And so the slaves lived in ignorance, obeying their masters and their whips when they didn't have to. So there was a saying among the plantation owners, keep them ignorant and keep them in the field. And then when the, then when the northern armies came to the south and announced to the slaves in Galveston, Texas, you're free by proclamation of the president two and a half years ago. There was great rejoicing. And so that's a new holiday for us celebrated on the 19th of June. What a shame that people would be free and not know and appreciate their freedom. Well, I think we have a good analogy here for what we're talking about in chapter 6. Paul is trying to convince his readers that they are now free from the master of sin and free from the law. The second question he tackles in verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under great because we're under grace? In other words, we're not under the law anymore. And the answer is no. In fact, the answer to both is absolutely no, that double negative. Certainly not. 
Sin leads to slavery and death. There are consequences to living that way. So, let's see how he builds his argument then as he goes on. What shall I say then? In verse 1, shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, grace is a good thing, so let's get more grace. Let's sin, let's sin more. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It doesn't make sense. We're dead to sin. We don't have to listen to sin anymore. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, that word means to be immersed into something, we were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, and therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now what Paul is doing is explaining our new position and our new identity. We who have believed in Christ have been immersed into the body of Christ. We've been baptized into his death. And so we have a new identity, and it's called Christian. Christ's one. No longer is it just Charlie Bing. It is Charlie and Jesus. Remember that when you talk to me. And when I talk to you, it's Charlie and Jesus on my best day, and you know what? On my worst day. If I decide to sin, I'm dragging Jesus along with me because that's my new position. And that's our new position in Jesus Christ. But not only were we baptized into his death, we we're also raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. He was so that we should walk in newness of life. We're also identified with him in his resurrection. What's happened is a funeral and a resurrection. In all of our lives, who have believed in Christ. We've been put to death with Christ as he died to sin, so did we. As he's been raised to life, a new life, so have we. Isn't that wonderful? A death and a resurrection for each of us. So, we were immersed in him. That's a very important positional truth. It's not talking here about water baptism. It's talking about a spiritual reality. Water baptism is an illustration of that, a very good illustration of that. When we, if we immerse, this <laughs> is a better illustration. Don't want to step on any toes or step on any sacred cows here. But uh, uh, that's, that's why baptism is usually pictured in the world I live in as an immersion and out of the water to show newness of life. And so verse 5, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The old man, um, well, let's go back up a little bit. Uh, our old man, he talks about. Um, our old man refers to our sin nature where we obeyed uh, sin because we pretty much had to do that. I compare it to a car that only has a reverse gear and we could only go in reverse. And when our master cracked the whip and said sin, we didn't have a lot of choice except to sin or to think about it or to imagine it or to fantasize about it. And so our old master tells us to sin, we, ha we had to obey. But he says, our old man was crucified with Jesus that the body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin, our sin nature, has been done away with. You say, well, wait a minute. I still have sinful urges. Well, he's, the word done away doesn't mean annihilated. 
It means overpowered or um, made powerless, not annihilated. So a big difference there. And this picture of a jet plane illustrates what I'm talking about. When you get on one of these jets, you get on any plane, but you know, I, we flew on a big 777. Three seats, I think, five seats, three seats, it's huge. And you say, how can this thing, based on the law of gravity, leave the ground? It seems like the law of gravity is a pretty strong law. But then it accelerates down the runway, and a new law overpowers the law of gravity. I guess it's called the law of aerodynamics. I'm not a scientist or engineer. The law of aerodynamics lifts the plane off the ground because the power of gravity has been overcome by a new principle, a new power. So it's not that we stop sinning or that sin has been abolished in our bodies, but it's that we now have a new, new power, a new position in Jesus Christ. Just as he's been raised from the dead, died to sin, raised to a new life, so also we can overcome sin now. He's given us a forward gear so that we can live for him. And it, but it's our choice and decision which gear we're going to use. So we have a new position, and we have a new master. Um, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So this is positional truth telling us that we have a new position in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but a new power in Jesus Christ as well. We still feel the effects of the old man, but we have a power to overcome it. So he tells us then in verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's telling us, and by the way, if you might notice, this is the first time in the book of Romans he tells us to do something. But it has nothing to do with outward acts. It's how we think. And the way we're to think is to reckon ourselves or to calculate, make a calculated decision that we are dead to sin. So knowledge is involved and a conscious determination to, to identify with Jesus Christ and not with our old man. So it takes that conscious decision. And then he sounds the battle cry in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin raise in, reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. We don't have to do that anymore. We're not under that old master. And do not present your members, your parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law but under grace. As new people, we no longer have to take orders from our old man, even though the tracks of sin run deep in our inner person. You know, when Karen and I arrived here, as whenever we travel, we have jet lag. That means we're living on Texas time in New Zealand. I'm here bodily, but my, my mind quite hasn't caught up with me. My biology hasn't, biological clock hasn't caught up with me. So I have to determine, calculate, 
I'm on New Zealand time. I have to think about it constantly. When are my kids awake? When can I text them and tell them to, to do this or that and water the plants or so forth? It takes that calculation. It's not automatic. It's something that has to be learned and determined. And that's what he's telling us to do. Identify with our new self because our dead self, our old self is dead. There is a story about St. Augustine when he was visiting his uh, hometown and as he walked down the street, you know, he was a promiscuous youth and had a lot of women. So when he was walking down the street, one of his old girlfriends said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he turned around and he said, well, it's not me. <laughs> he was reflecting the truth that we're reading right here. That it really wasn't him anymore. He was now a Christian. He had a new position. And so he tells us to yield our members, which are the tools of, you know, everything we do, we do with our members, our head, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet. And we don't have to obey sin. You know, many times we approach the Christian life, I think, a little bit backwards. We say to new Christians, we say, now, when you sin, if you confess your sins, God will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We always teach that, right? And we should. But shouldn't they also be taught this first, that you really don't have to sin if you obey your master? And then, but when you do sin, you can confess your sins. In other words, instead of telling people, you know what? When you drive off the cliff, there's an ambulance at the bottom. We can put a sign up there and says, don't go this way. Road closed. You don't have to go this way. So sometimes I think we approach the Christian life a little bit different. They may be backwards. So change our thinking is what he's telling us to do. We know the truth. We have a new position. We need to calculate what that means in our life, make a considered uh, uh, conclusion about that, and then yield the parts of our bodies so that this goes from attitude to action. From just a positional truth to an experiential truth. We're dead to sin and we can live freely from sin. And that involves asking for help and that gets into chapter 8 which tells us the key to that is surrendering our minds to the Holy Spirit and letting Him control our minds. And we'll get to that but we won't have time to develop that too much. So, he comes to the second question. Well, here we go. Three steps to living under grace is to know or understand the facts and these positional truths that used to, I didn't understand at all and they scared me when I was a new Christian, but we're hoping to make that clearer today. And then to reckon or calculate the implications of those truths and then to present ourselves to the new master. Someone has said that the first responsibility of every freed slave is to find his, her new master. Because nothing's absolutely free. God is not free. He can't sin. New Zealand's a free country, but there's a lot of stop signs and speed limits. There's a lot of rules, same as in America. So there's no such thing as really absolute freedom. And in the Christian life, we're free from the law, but we're free to serve God. We can choose to serve ourselves, but that's not the purpose of our freedom. So we come to chapter 15. 
Uh, it won't let me get to chapter 15. Let's, let's just say, summarize it this way so far. Remember your unsaved days when you had to obey your master's sin? That's volume one. But now you're under volume two of your life. Bury your old man. We have a new position, a new master, a new power. Okay, now we get to verse 15 where he says, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And his answer is certainly not. Double negative, strong negative. We serve a new master. So we're not under law. That means we can do anything that we want. Grace means we can have license to sin. No, that's not what he's saying at all. We should obey our new master. You see, I think that the, what Paul is reflecting here is probably the Jewish thinking, especially the Jews, because they were so used to having all their actions and life determined by the law. On a day-to-day -day basis, they were told what they could do and what they could not do. And so suddenly, for Paul to come along and say, you're not under that law anymore, that scared them a little bit. Because grace is risky. Freedom is risky. How many parents here have raised children and give them that little line of freedom bit by bit. But every, every time you do, you're a little bit scared. How are they going to use that freedom? But you know you have to do it or else they'll never mature. You cannot mature under the law. It keeps us suppressed. It keeps us on training wheels like on a bicycle. We can't be free, totally free to mature and grow until we learn to be led by the Spirit instead of told what to do by the law. Freedom is always risky. When I traveled to Russia, after Russia was liberated, I found that there was a pretty big void in the church with mature leadership. And I think it was because, or it was explained to me, because the government made all the decisions, and so leaders just abdicated to the government oftentimes and, and followed the lead of the government. So they didn't learn to make wise and mature decisions. And then most recently, just what, a year and a half, two years ago, I was in Ukraine right before the war, a couple months before the war. And it seems like everybody's story was that they either were an alcoholic or their parents were terrible alcoholics. Because they explained to me what happened was under communism, alcohol was basically illegal and you couldn't get drunk. And then as soon as communism lifted, there was no more laws. Everybody went out and got drunk and then they stayed drunk. And they ruined their families and they ruined their lives. Testimony after testimony after testimony involved drugs and drinking. One man who came up afterwards after the training says that he was addicted to alcohol at the age of eight, hard liquor at the age of eight. And he was arrested at the age of 11 and he spent, I forget how many years in prison. And he was just coming up to thank me for the teaching. But that was his testimony. Grace is risky. Grace is scary because it gives us freedom and we can abuse that freedom. My understanding of the scripture is that we have the free, self-determining will to make the choices, whether for good or for bad. So, does the fact that we're not under the law encourage sin? No, it should not. We have a new master. We should submit our lives to, <coughs> excuse me, to the life that he gives to us. And... <coughs> To submit to sin leads to death 
or a separation in our fellowship with God, but to submit to God leads to life or a closer relationship and experience of his life. The truth is we can only serve one master, and we have the choice of which master we will serve. We can go back into the realm of death. We can eat roadkill, or you can eat some nice, clean, grass-fed New Zealand beef. Those are the two choices before you. You see, he says... In verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You want to go back? What fruit did you have as an unbeliever serving yourself in sin? You want to go back to that, really? That's what he says. The end of that is death. Now here the word death doesn't mean that you'll drop dead. It doesn't mean that you're unsaved or lose your salvation. What death means here is a separation from God in your fellowship because he's talking to Christians. Remember, the book of Romans goes forward. It's always advancing in its argument. And so the context, he's talking to believers, and they're trying to deal with this issue of the law and how to live under grace. And if you go back, you're going to experience death like you did before you were a Christian. Can a Christian have a death-like experience? in their fellowship with God? They certainly can. Read Psalm 32, like I mentioned before, and how David grieved and groaned after he sinned and how he, was, how he wanted the joy of his salvation back. I had a man in my church as I, when I pastored, and um, he became a medical doctor, and he, went off, he was getting ready to go off to do his internship in another state. And I said to him now, I said, Ray... You know, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to have a lot of money, and there's going to be a lot of pretty nurses. He had a wife and three children. And I said, just be careful. Be careful. Well, I guess he wasn't careful. He went off, did his internship, met a nurse, left his family, had children with her, didn't pay his taxes, ended up in jail. He wrote me from jail, and I don't remember all that he said, but I remember this line. He said, Charlie, this is a fate worse than death. He'd gone back and eaten roadkill, and he was living back under the shame and guilt that he had experienced as an unbeliever because of the choices he made. No question about his salvation. I mean, he was a deacon in my church. I knew him well. But that's the choice that he made. Death. But, verse 22, now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. That's sanctification. And the end of that, everlasting life. Sanctification leads down a road to the enjoyment of the life that you have. He's not saying that if you surrender to God, you, you will be saved and experience everlasting life as a gift because he's already talked about that in chapter 3, justification. Now he's talking about experiencing that life. He's shifted from justification, truth, to sanctification, truth. If you want to experience the life, the everlasting life that you have, then you submit to God. Now, a lot of people think of everlasting life as something that you pick up when you pass out. But everlasting life or eternal life is simply God's life in us. And that's something that we receive when we believe in Jesus as our Savior but it's something that we also experience throughout our lifetime. We experience eternal life. 
Jesus said in John 10, 10b, he said, I have come that you might have life initially and have it abundantly experientially. John 17, 3, Jesus defines life as knowing God and the one that he has sent. Knowing God. This is eternal life, he says, that you might know God and the one that he has sent. So eternal life is not just a gift that we received. It's a relationship that we can enjoy. And that's what Rebel, I think uh, Romans 6, 22 and 23 is talking about. Not working our way into everlasting life, but enjoying the life that we have. If I asked you a question, what would be better than winning the million-dollar lotto or lottery here in New Zealand? What would be better than that? There is something better. Spending it, right? <laughs> so you got a check for a million dollars. That's great. But is that, is that it? You've got eternal life. You're saved. you got your ticket to heaven. Is that it? No. Now you can live the life, as we just sang from Galatians 2.20. Um, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, uh, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the Christian life is not just having a ticket to heaven. It is enjoying the whole experience of a new life in us that is God's life, eternal life. Now here we come to verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, I know we use this verse a lot in evangelism. I don't want to step on any sacred cows again. But this, in the context, is written to Christians. Okay? Let me say, I'm not against using it in an evangelistic presentation. I do it myself. Because the principle applies to unbelievers as much as it does to believers, does it not? If unbelievers are, are, have sinned, then they're separated from God. Death. But for Christians, they sin, and we are also separated from God, but it's in a different sense. It's in fellowship. So he's writing this to Christians to tell us that if we can live, uh, if, if, that, that sin will pay its wages, just like God will pay his, us uh, a ex richer experience of eternal life when we live for him. It's a gift not only initially in our justification, but it's a gift that keeps on giving, we might say. And so grace is not something to be abused, not something to be feared, but it is risky. And there are consequences because grace, living under grace and abusing it can lead to that separation in fellowship from God. So the meaning of everlasting life here is going to be the experience of God's life, not just the reception of it. How do we live the Christian life? We live with liberty but not license because we have a new master and sin has consequences. Our choices have consequences and those choices will hurt us sometimes and hurt others and certainly grieve God. When we were raising our children, my, our second daughter fell off the swing set and broke her arm. I don't know how old she was, five, something like that. And her older sister saw us as we brought her home from the hospital in a cast and 
laid her out on the sofa in the living room and took care of her and doted over her, brought her meals, checked on her. And our, the older sister standing there saying, I want to break my arm too. No, you don't, because it hurts. And it might not heal exactly the way you want. God can forgive sins, but sometimes scars remain. And it hurts, and it hurts would hurt us as parents. And it, there are consequences to those kinds of things. So who are you going to serve? Present yourselves to Jesus to serve him. That's what chapter 6 is trying to tell us. There is a story from the days of uh, abolition in the United States when a pastor from the north, which was known as anti-slavery, decided to visit the south. Pastor Richard Fairbanks went to the south, and while he was in the south, he decided to, de to visit a slave market and see for himself what was going on. And there he saw humans sold on the auction block, auctioned off. And then at one point, a beautiful young lady was put on the auction block, half naked, and the men leering made all kinds of crude comments about what they were going to do when they bought her. And Pastor Richard Fairbanks was led to enter the bidding himself. And he, he bid and he bid and he outbid everyone and bought the young lady. He went up and they got the papers for her ownership and she in chains followed him outside the auction house and as soon as he turned to her, she spit in his face and said, I will kill you the first chance I get. He took a key and he unlocked her chains. He gave her the papers. He said, you're free. And he walked away. Soon he heard the steps running behind him. And he turned around and this young lady falls at his feet. And she says, sobbing, Master, I will serve you as long as I live. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Do we want to abuse that kind of grace and that kind of love? He's freed us. How do we use that freedom? To serve ourselves or to serve the one who died for us and set us free? Well, we don't have time really to go into chapter 7, but chapter 7 shows that there is a struggle between the flesh, trying to live the Christian life by the flesh and by the law, and Paul reaches a point where he just says, I want to do what's right, but I always do what's wrong. And by the end of chapter 7, he's crying out, who will deliver me from this, this body of death, this wretched body of death? Now, some people think that this chapter 7 is speaking of the struggle of unbelievers to be saved. But again, we're advancing the argument of Paul through the book of Romans, and he's been addressing Christians he wouldn't go back and talk about salvation back like he did in chapter 3. He's going forward about how to live the Christian life. And so the law in the Christian life doesn't have the power to change us. It only aggravates sin is what he says in chapter 7. It's like telling the child, don't you dare touch that cookie jar. What's that child going to do as soon as you turn your back? You see, the do's and the don'ts aggravate sin. Wet paint, don't touch. Well, what do you want to do? You weren't thinking about it until you heard the law. And so Paul is frustrated by the law because it just makes him sin more. And the law can't save him from sin is basically what he's saying in chapter 7. 
And so he cries out in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he answers his own question. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he clues us in that the secret to the Christian life is right here. It's in the mind. Because what the mind determines, the body will follow and do. And that gets us into chapter 8, where it discusses this whole thing about how to let the Spirit of God control our minds. You can get this outline later online and all these slides online. But the deliverance from sin comes from the power of the Holy Spirit if we let him control us in our thinking and in our mind. And if he does, um, verse 4, 8, 4, the righteousness, that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The secret to the Christian life is to walk according to the Spirit, to, let, to set our minds on Him. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. It just leads you down that dark path of shadows and guilt. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There's so much there, but he talks about the, the risen Christ being in us, and he gives power to us to live our life through him. And then in verses 12 through 17, he talks about our sonship, that new position that we have as children of God. Sons or daughters, but he uses the word sons here. And... Um, he says, no longer are we slaves of, of sin, but we, are now, we can now approach God. We've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, verse 15. It's an affectionate term, like saying Papa. And when I was in the Middle East, in Israel, I heard um, the, the Arab-Palestinian children crying out, Abba, Abba. As then, so now, you hear the same term. But it's a term of familiarity, you see. We can approach God as our father, not as our slave master. We no longer need to fear him. But we have a loving relationship. We have easy access to him. And the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. There's evidence in the Spirit of God that we are his children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We will inherit along with Jesus Christ his rulership over dominion, which was our in, intended purpose from the very beginning. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now the way I understand that is we're heirs of God. Everyone who's a believer is an heir of God. And I would put a comma after that. You know, there's no commas in the Greek language. The commas after Christ in my translation, but I would put it after God. In other words, everyone's an heir of God, but we're a joint heir with Christ, especially if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Just a little note there to emphasize the fact that suffering brings an extra reward in our eternal existence with Jesus Christ. So, in chapter 8, he talks about then how uh, we earnestly wait for that redemption of our bodies, that the whole earth is groaning under this burden of sin. 
Our bodies are groaning under this burden of sin. I groan every morning when I get up and put my socks on. It's like the most painful thing I do every day. <laughs> I've had four back surgeries and two knee surgeries. and Bending over is not fun. We're all groaning, aren't we? And the earth is groaning, it says, because the earth is under the curse. And it even says that the Spirit is praying for us with groans that can't be uttered, making intercession for the saints. So we're all waiting for that great day of redemption and freedom. Positionally, we've been freed. That freedom is enjoyed when we yield ourselves to our new master and live not a life of license, but a life of liberty, liberty controlled by love. So how righteous can grace make us practically or experientially as righteous as God demands if he controls our mind? That's what it means to be free in Christ. That's what slaves miss out. But I tell you that I, I appreciate freedom. It's at the top of my list of values in life. And when I vote politically, I vote for the party that's going to give me the most freedom. Because I appreciate freedom. I read books of people who live under regimes where they're controlled, they're told what to think, they're told what kind of furniture to buy, they're told what kind of haircut. Yeah, I read about North Korea. There's only certain haircuts you're allowed to have. Everybody has a government-issued sofa. It's terrible, terrible to live like that. We live in freedom, and we shouldn't take that for granted. Now, the question that many of you have but are afraid to ask is, what is my ancestry? You're trying to guess. What is my lineage? I don't mind talking about it at all. My father is full, was full, he's gone, he was full-blooded Chinese, but he was born in America. His mother, my grandmother, came over from China. She came over sold as a slave at the age of eight because poor Chinese families sold the girls because they weren't very helpful around the farm. So. They sold the girls. There was a big trade in, in these young girls. They were called Musai because they usually ended up being concubines or in the, in the sex traffic. And they were usually uh, sold to a master in America. So she was sold to a Chinese master in America, and uh, she was abused, certainly. At the age of 12, she was pregnant. She didn't know what was happening to her body. She didn't know what pregnant was. She lost a couple babies. She had a third boy finally born to her but her master was abusive so one night at the age of seven, about 17 she broke through the wall of her bedroom and escaped to freedom and she began a life of freedom she couldn't read English she couldn't write English we don't know exactly what she did she won't she never told us exactly what she did to survive but she was free somehow she met my grandfather who came over at some point to work on the railroads and in the United States and ended up in Washington, D.C. They met in Washington, D.C. They had a boy. That's my father, Robert. And then my father married a Caucasian American woman and had us five siblings. So that's our story. My grandmother, who was the slave, lived with me for 17 years until she died at the age of 90 and I was 17 years old. 
And I got to see her enjoy her freedom, although she, and she became a Christian at the age of 40. So she was physically set free. But at the age of 40, someone invited her to a Sunday school class taught by a missionary to China who spoke Chinese. And, and so she went and she heard the gospel for the first time and she believed right there in Washington, D.C. on, I think, North Capitol Street near the Capitol. I have her baptismal certificate. I have her first Bible. She was freed from that life of slavery and then from a life of sin. And she enjoyed that freedom until she was 90 years old. I appreciate freedom because I'm not that far from slavery. Just one generation away from slavery between me and, and someone who was a slave. I don't take freedom for granted. And I want to use my freedom to serve the Lord. I don't want to go back under the slavery of the law. I don't want to go back under legalism where people demand that you act a certain way, speak a certain way, dress a certain way, use a certain Bible. That's not where I live. I live in the grace of God. Grace has set me free. I don't know what more I can say than that. But my encouragement is for you to enjoy the freedom you have by serving God with it. Not living for yourselves, but for the one who has set you free. I'll stop right there. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.